A Northwest Orient Airlines DC-4 is traveling from New York to Seattle with two stopovers on the way. What caused it to disappear? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we're struggle busting today. <laughs> we just spent the last three minutes of this recording laughing for ourselves. For a, a host of reasons. For, so. for absolutely nothing related to the podcast. Check out our blooper reel. It's sad. Hashtag. What was I going to say? <laughs> the magic of editing. The magic of edit. No, I was going to say, oh, hashtag Patreon. Check us out on Patreon if you want to go hear what we were laughing about for the last three minutes. Literally nothing. Literally nothing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what? this is number 31. What? What's what's number 31? Today we are covering Northwest Airlines or Northwest Orient Airlines 2501. This was recommended by my work grandma. Thanks, Karen. Thank, Thank you for the recommendation. Thanks. So, this was a flight on June 23rd of 1950. This is it's an, old. An old, oldie. Old. An oldie. It was a Douglas DC-4. We haven't really talked about those much yet. They're old. <clears throat> they are old. They are a big quad prop, big radial engines. So, in other words, the cylinders are all organized in a big circle. And they're big, loud, noisy, shaky airplanes. And they usually have an odd number of cylinders. They do. Per engine. And this had four engines. The tail number was November 95425. So this was an American flight? Yep. Northwest Airlines is based in Minneapolis. They changed their name temporarily to Northwest Orient Airlines for a long period of time. That's why I was asking. I understand. It does not seem like an American airline, but now I'm like, it has an an N in the tail number, so it is American. Right. The only reason they did that is because they were a very large U.S. airline, and... They were one of the first airlines to really capitalize on Asian flights flying oh, across okay. the Pacific. So they liked to call themselves Northwest Orient Airlines. Now that changed eventually and they just became known as Northwest Airlines again. And and then they got eaten. They got eaten by Delta. This airplane was built in 1943 and was originally flown by the U.S. Air Force. Ooh, during, fancy. During World War II. Wow. It was then taken by a Venezuelan airline briefly, before being acquired by Northwest Airlines and converted to a 55-passenger-plus-cargo airliner and used for airline service. Now, that means it was only seven years during that time, between the time of manufacture through its Air Force career, through Venezuelan Airlines, and then a handful of years with Northwest Airlines. It's been around. It's been around. The captain for the flight was Robert C. Lind. He was 35 years old. He had 8,662 hours total. Of which 1,968 hours were on the DC-4. The first officer was Vern F. Wolf, who was also 35. He had 3,821 hours total, of which 470 hours were on the DC-4. This flight was scheduled from LaGuardia to Seattle with intermediate stops in Minneapolis and Spokane. I like Spokane. That's weird that they'd stop in Spokane and then go to Seattle. Yeah, I know, but... People wanted to stop there and get off. Okay. So. I just feel like it's so close together. You'd think, but it's also far enough that probably didn't hurt taking on a little bit extra fuel. Hmm. I like Spokane. I'd live there. Yeah, it's a nice place. 10 out of 10. There were 55 passengers and three crew on board. 
So it was at capacity. It was at capacity. At 6 p.m., one hour before the scheduled departure, the crew arrived at the airline flight control office at LaGuardia. The crew and the dispatcher discussed the route and the weather for the flight. They ran through the hourly forecasts with weather maps provided by the Weather Bureau, which would today be probably NOAA. Which stands for? National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. There you go. (laughs) The forecast indicated a potential for thunderstorms in the Detroit to Minneapolis area with moderate to severe turbulence above 10,000 feet and light to moderate turbulence below 10,000 feet. This led the captain and the dispatcher to decide on a cruising altitude of 4,000 feet. Yes, very low compared to what we normally talk about. Part of that was because it was not a pressurized cabin. This airplane was not pressurized. Wait, so what was the altitude they went up to? 4,000 feet. Oh, okay. Well, then that makes sense. That's their cruising altitude. Very low. Yep. This, these For airplanes, an airliner. Yes, these airplanes. But at the time, this was pretty normal. Most airliners during the time didn't fly above 10,000 feet because most of them weren't pressurized. A special thunderstorm forecast was issued at 3.45 p.m. and was involved in the discussion that read as follows. Scattered thunderstorms along and east of the cold front, bases at 3,000 to 4,000 feet, tops at 30,000 to 40,000 feet, which obviously they couldn't reach, with moderate to severe turbulence at all levels in the thunderstorms, and moderate turbulence below thunderstorms advising flights below 10,000 feet to proceed with caution in the frontal zone, anticipating the activity to be at its peak between the hours of 10.30 p.m. of the 23rd and 4 a.m. of the 24th Eastern Standard Time, with possible squall line development ahead of the front during during the evening. What is a squall line? A squall line is literally the front of the storm with really, really heavy winds. It's a really large concentration of unstable air that leads to very heavy thunderstorms. Typically hail, high winds, heavy turbulence, lightning, heavy rain. Gross. Yeah. So a squall line is a very concentrated point along the front where the two, the high pressure and the low pressure, meet. In some parts of the country, that will cause tornadoes. Yay. Like here. Yeah. I know a lot of parts of the world don't experience tornadoes. They're horrifying. They give me anxiety. You don't want to see one ever. So. (laughs) That was Miranda's TED Talk. That's been my TED Talk. At 6.45 p.m., a new forecast was received by the flight control office, but the flight crew had already left the office and headed for the airplane. As the new forecast had predicted better weather conditions than the previously discussed one, the crew was not advised of the updated forecast. They figured they would just probably be fine. It would be less bad than they were anticipating. That's probably not true. Along with the 55 passengers and three crew was 2,500 gallons of fuel, 80 gallons of oil, and 490 pounds of cargo for a total weight of 71,342 pounds for takeoff, leaving just 58 pounds of margin from their maximum takeoff weight. That's not very much. That's not very much at all. I hate cutting it that close. We the, talked about, if you listened to this past week's episode, because, you know, we update twice, we, we record two weeks in advance, mm-hmm. we talked about the Margins. Southwest Airlines one, and how they had, like, as long as it was a positive margin, you're fine. Well, uh, uh, I don't know about that. I Margins need to be... Fair on the side of caution with margins. <laughs> yeah, margins need to be safe. The balance was within tolerance, so with the numbers, so both numbers, the weight and the balance, were within the tolerance of the aircraft for takeoff. 
At 7.31 p.m., the flight departed LaGuardia for Minneapolis without issue. The flight plan that was filed originally requested a cruising altitude of 4,000 feet, but this was denied by ARTC, or Air Route Traffic Control, which is air traffic control, due to other traffic at the level, at that level, and the flight was subsequently filed for 6,000 feet instead. This plane was unpressurized and therefore typically flew below 10,000 feet for all passenger operations. Air traffic control had no radar at the time to track planes, so all air route traffic control operations used radio communications for reference points, tied with mathematical calculations and maps to determine aircraft routes and traffic patterns. So all of it was calculated. They just didn't have radar at the time for air traffic control. They would just do literally math. They would calculate where everything was, and it was a really high-stakes job that had no visuals. Great. At 9.49 p.m., the flight was over Cleveland, Ohio, when they requested a cruising altitude of 4,000 feet again, and was approved this time, and subsequently given instructions to descend to 3,500 feet about 40 minutes later, as another airplane was headed in the opposite direction over Lake Michigan at 5,000 feet on the same track, and experiencing heavy turbulence that made it difficult to maintain altitude. Air traffic control believed that 1,000 feet separation distance was not enough for safe flight between those two airplanes. So in other words, the 4,000, 5,000, that 1,000 foot difference between the two of them, because one of those planes was already experiencing turbulence and was having a difficult time maintaining that 5,000 foot, they wanted a further distance than 1,000 feet margin. Can I ask why they kept wanting to go down to 4,000? They figured that, so they they can't really go above 10,000, and the tops of the storms are at 40. And so they know that below 10,000, there's less turbulence, and the closer to the ground they get, they figure there's even less. Oh, so they just wanted to make sure that they the, just the ride to, was comfortable for the passengers. Yes, yeah, they wanted to have as little turbulence as possible, so they were comfortable being as low as air traffic control would let them. The two airplanes were expected to cross paths around the area of Battle Creek, Michigan. At 10.51 p.m., Flight 2501 reported being over Battle Creek at 3,500 feet, and that they should be over Milwaukee at 11.37 p.m. All of these things were pretty typical at the time. They were feeding back their exact position to air traffic control at any given moment and telling them their expected time at the next reference point in order to help traffic and air traffic control and air route traffic control make their, their planning, their decisions for patterns of traffic. Makes sense. When the airplane was in the vicinity of Benton Harbor, Michigan, a small coastal town along Lake Michigan, at 11.13 p.m., they requested a descent to 2,500 feet without reasoning. The air traffic controller for the area did not approve the request due to other traffic in the area. The crew acknowledged that air traffic control could not approve the descent at 11.15 p.m., and this was the last time that that crew would ever be heard from. At 11.37 p.m., the Northwest Radio Station at Milwaukee contacted the Chicago and Minneapolis Air Route Traffic Control Centers to inform them that Flight 2501 was 10 minutes overdue, as they had incorrectly copied down 11.27 p.m. instead of 11.37 p.m. from the earlier report that the crew had given for their estimate of being over Milwaukee. So everyone's a hot mess. So everybody was a mess. There was a lot of things missing there. So at 11.37, when they were estimating being over Milwaukee, they already made the call that they were 10 minutes late because they had copied down incorrectly 11.27 p.m. So they made the call to Chicago to say, we have an airplane 10 minutes overdue. At 11.45 p.m., 
the Milwaukee Northwest radio station made a call requesting that the flight circle the Madison range station if their transmitter was inoperative. But the airplane was not seen there. So in other words, they told the airplane, if you can't talk to us, just circle over this spot and we'll see if we spot you. And they weren't spotted there. Around the same time, all air traffic control stations in the area broadcasted a message trying to reach out to the airplane, but no response was received on any station. At 11.58 p.m., Chicago Air Route Traffic Control, at the request of Northwest Airlines, alerted air and sea rescue facilities, including the Navy, the Coast Guard, and state police from Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. The aircraft was assumed to have been involved in an accident at 5.30 a.m. in the morning, the next morning. Which is way later than when they these figuratively days, fell off the radar. Right. These days, it's within a few minutes. But this is now the next morning, at 5.30 in the morning. This is literally almost five and a half hours later. So the aircraft was assumed to have been involved in an accident at 5.30 a.m. the following morning, as by that time, the aircraft would have been out of available fuel. So, so they that's couldn't what, have flown around anymore So their assumption the is right, that Their assumption was, by this point, the airplane is not in the air. On June 24th, the day after the flight was last heard from, an oil slick was spotted, as well as small pieces of floating debris, such as clothing, luggage, and light pieces of the cabin, were seen floating about 18 miles from Benton, Michigan, in Lake Michigan. So they assumed it crashed into the lake. Diving rescue crews attempted to search the area that the debris was found, which was about 150 feet deep of water and 40 feet of silt, but was unable to locate any debris on the lake floor, as visibility was only about 8 inches at the time. Further searches in the coming days did not locate the aircraft either. The few pieces of debris that were recovered floating on the surface or washed ashore showed tearing and heavy damage, indicating a heavy impact at high speed. There were no scorch marks found on any of the debris, making a fire unlikely. But the plane has not been found. How do you lose an entire plane full of 58 passengers? As of today, this is the only airliner aircraft missing in the United States. I was going to say, you can't say the only one in the world. Because no. there's a very famous one that we will never cover until they actually try to find it. But. Right. I nope. mean, when they actually find it. And this one in the United States is the only one. Yep. Large airliner that has gone missing. It's not the only airplane gone missing, but this is the only large airliner and only air passenger airliner that has gone missing in the United States. What's weird to me is they had an oil slick and they found like luggage and stuff, but exactly. they didn't find anything else. But they have been unable to locate the airplane. That would make me think that it was something like a very fast, high impact that made it impossible. Like it's happened before mm -hmm. with several different crashes where something hits water or land hard enough, it kind of just vaporizes everything. Like Swiss Air 111. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know if that would have happened here because they weren't very high up right? for that to happen. They'd have to be going like legit straight down. And even then they might not have been able to get enough G's to do that. Right. The other thing that makes it difficult and is, so it is called Lake Michigan, but Lake is Almost a misnomer in this case, because I don't know if you know, but Lake Michigan is freaking giant. It's huge, yeah. It is. And at its deepest point, I think we heard it's like a thousand feet deep. It's basically an ocean. Have they ever tried, like, having searchers, like, uh, deep sea divers or anything try to go down there and see? Absolutely. Uh, get into it. Great. Uh, later. Um, anyway, so the investigation, the brief investigation. 
The investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB, similar to last week. We're on a roll, I swear. And this report was the easiest thing I've ever read in my life. Yep. It's because it was four pages long. Uh, it was three pages with one page of supplemental data. I read it out loud to Nick while he, my mom was cutting his hair today. That It was short. She read the whole thing. The whole report. The whole report. So the CAB didn't actually have a whole lot to go on, as it turns out. As debris was being recovered, most of the investigation turned to pilot reports and airline records as a start. Pilots in the area reported more turbulence than the weather reports did, so much so, in fact, that three flights that took off from Detroit after midnight actually turned around and went back because they weren't able to go around the storm. All pilots in the area reported moderate to severe turbulence, frequent lightning both cloud to cloud and cloud to ground, and no hail. Several flights were able to go around the storm to the south, but again, not everyone could. Many on-the-ground witnesses reported a severe storm and that its southern edge, or squall line, was at or near where the plane went down at the time that it supposedly went down. This is the most obvious basis of a probable cause, as the previous flight crews of the plane, as well as maintenance records and the pre-flight check performed by the accident crew, all reported that the accident aircraft was mechanically A-OK. Now for the wreckage, or what they had of it. The deformation of the fragments, as Dick had mentioned, showed that the plane did not just lightly glide down to the surface, but rather struck with considerable force, particularly in a forward, downward, leftward direction. How did they figure that out? Where it bent. Oh, where it so bent, like, but they couldn't find any... So there were pieces, and from these pieces they knew what was supposed to be facing forward, and based on where the deformation was on that particular piece, they could tell. Okay. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Okay. Additionally, there was no sign of fire, although the lack of wreckage doesn't completely rule that out. So. They also landed in a lake. Yes. But. So. As we've discussed, lightning could cause problems. As we just true. discussed last week. Ultimately, the two possibilities that were mentioned were a structural failure due to turbulence or loss of control due to turbulence. One thing that was mentioned in the Expedition Unknown episode that actually makes a lot of sense why this wasn't delved into further is that the Korean War started soon after this crash. Not just soon after. It started the day after this crash. So not a lot of attention was paid to this crash. In fact, the families of the victims actually had a really hard time getting information about their family members to the point that, like in the last decade, investigators people who are trying to find the wreckage have found like mass graves that were just in like south haven michigan and no one from told what from the crash and no one told the families like they were finding body parts and so they just put them in mass graves and didn't tell the families wait what so they found body parts from people on this plane yep they were washing ashore and they just didn't say anything Correct. Yep. and as a matter of fact there's a lot of stories about people at the airport waiting to pick up family members and nobody ever came to tell them that the plane didn't make it, ever. Nobody ever called, nobody ever told them. One of the the family members said that it was his pastor that heard about an airplane had gone down and heard the flight number and called him and said, hey, your father's flight has crashed. So they decided definitively that it did land in the lake then. That it, something in the lake. <laughs> <laughs> something in the lake. But they they can't find the rest of the wreckage of the plane. Correct. But pieces were found and body parts were showing up. Yes. Which means, to me, if bodies were dismembered from this, that was, means they had to hit pretty hard. It was a really high impact. Yep. That, and, which is one of the only things that they knew. Is that it was super high impact? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it would make sense if it was turbulence because of how low they were and in the storm and stuff. We have a couple speculations of our own, but we'll get into those. We'll save those for a bit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. (laughs) I guess I'll just jump into the very few findings that they have. I'm going to skip a few because they're like, oh, this was fine, this was fine, etc. The plane was in working condition, etc., etc., etc. To the best that they could tell. Yep. I mean, from what maintenance said before they left, right? Well, okay, maybe I'm not going to skip stuff then. The carrier crew and aircraft were properly certificated. That's the only obvious one. (laughs) Prior to takeoff, the crew was thoroughly briefed regarding the en route and terminal weather, which included a forecast of thunderstorm activity and the possible development of a squall line. A forecast was issued one hour and 40 minutes prior to the accident, and while the flight was en route, in which was described the development and location of a squall line. This forecast was not made available to the flight. No report of difficulty in the operation of the aircraft or any of its components was received from the flight. At 11.13 p.m., the flight requested a lower altitude, but because of conflicting traffic, the request was denied. At the approximate time of the accident, a squall line was located in the area where the aircraft crashed. Despite an intensive surface and underwater search, the aircraft was not located with the exception of a few fragments. Probable cause. The board determines that there is not sufficient evidence upon which to make a determination of probable cause. I I would say that I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Since they couldn't, you know, I think they could have done a better job investigating this because I get that the Korean War started the day after this, but come on. So there's quite a few things that go with this. So this was the worst aviation accident in U.S. history at the time. To this point. To this point. But within the decade that followed, that was year over year changed. That's this was true. the worst at the time. and like, That didn't last long. Literally year after year through the 50s, it would get worse kind of makes sense because aviation grew rapidly especially commercial aviation during the 50s so obviously this couldn't be there couldn't be a whole lot of attention spent on an airplane that didn't exist anymore you know they, it, would, it took way too many resources they already sent out the navy the coast guard and all the state polices from around lake michigan and they couldn't find the airplane so with the technology that they had at the time they did what they could and they couldn't find it i still think that there probably was stuff that th- the whole thing where they didn't tell people about bodies washing up. Yeah. That was not good. So yeah, that was poor management of the situation. That's true. Not much we can do about that. That has since changed quite a bit. Yep. Well, a, lot yes. of, a lot of things have changed, actually. A lot of things have changed. But before we do any of that, speculations. Okay. So I I have a couple of speculations. One, I think it is possible that they did get struck by lightning. We proved that, especially in that time period, that could be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Now, True, there was no scorch marks. I mean, they don't have a whole lot to work with. That doesn't mean that the wreckage doesn't have scorch marks. Right. My theory... So, obviously, they say that there could, be a, there could have been a structural failure. They don't really dive deep into what that means, but basically, they could have been going through turbulence, and much like the American Airlines A300 over New York broke off and lost a tail due to heavy use of the rudder, it's not to say that this couldn't have done the same thing. But that's not my theory, actually. My theory is that is one that's unmentioned in the report. My theory is that the airplane was actually, they were already at a relatively low altitude. They requested 2,500 feet. 
Now, they were flying, obviously, probably in bad turbulence. They were probably trying to deal with weather, and they're trying to deal with orientation and such. It's night. It's dark. There's storms. There's clouds. They're over a lake, so there's no lights. And as a matter of fact, an eyewitness said that they spotted the airplane. Like, they were standing at their home on the coast, and they spotted the airplane actually make a turn back toward Michigan, and they were flying eastbound. Yeah, so I wanted to get into this in a little bit when we went over the Expedition Unknown episode, but there came recently, let me back up a little bit, there are two main investigators who are still trying to find the wreckage to date. It's a couple, their names are Valerie and Jack Van Heest. They've been coordinating underwater dive searches, etc., working with various scientists trying to figure out where this plane could possibly be, and one day they just had somebody come up to them say, hey, I have this newspaper clipping about the crash and there was an eyewitness report in it. And they were like, excuse me? So the newspaper was the South Haven Daily Tribune and the eyewitness saw the flash on the lake but noticed that the plane was flying east at the time and this witness was named Commander Helms. So he knew what he was talking about. He was in, I can't remember what kind of military, but he wasn't. But he was observing the airplane. Yep. As it flew off the coast, and they believe it was much closer than they thought originally. And... So my other theory is spatial disorientation altogether. Yes, I believe spatial disorientation is more likely. I think they essentially flew the airplane into the water, just like in Swiss Air 111. They found themselves in a situation where they were really disoriented, they had no idea what was going on, and they tried to turn back toward land, and in doing so, they weren't paying attention to altitude, and they just put the airplane in the water without knowing it. So they were flying probably full steam ahead... Right into the water. Yep. Because that would explain why there would be high impact forces. That would explain why the airplane would basically be in a different spot than they originally thought. Yep. There's so many things that go with that that I believe that that's actually true. Hands down. So I I was really fascinated by this episode. They made this a lot more personable than I think we really do in a lot of our crashes. Valerie had a box of some personal effects from one of the passengers that had washed ashore. His name was Merle Barton. They found his checkbook, which had the last entry, his airline ticket, for $94.30. They also found his jacket floating in the lake, which the family said is the jacket he would have been wearing while he was on board. And it was shredded on around his shoulders and his neck. That would explain high impact forces. I mean, that's how they knew. So that was emotional, needless to say. Mm-hmm. Other things that were mentioned in the episode that were not mentioned in the report. So we talked about a squall line and the fact that this was an intense storm. But what researchers were able to do is they were able to go back and look at like really basic manual weather observations. Like, oh, visibility was this, wind speeds and direction was this, etc., etc. And they were able to reverse engineer what weather conditions were actually like. They made a reverse forecast. And they found that... The pressure drop was 115 millibars. Which is huge. Uh, think the bombogenesis we went through last year. Like, this was... The bomb cyclone? Yeah. The yeah. extreme pressure drop causes a very extreme storm. This is very much an applicable concept, coupled with in excess of 70 mile per hour winds. They believe up to 100 mile an hour per winds at a time. 100 mile per hour winds at a time. And that that's enough... Between those things to know that that airplane was not in a safe place. Well, and it was so low yeah. yep. that it would have gotten all of that and the turbulence. If if it was spatial orientation, I mean, they probably were so worried about the turbulence that they didn't... There were so many things going on. They were on. so worried 
to try to get back to land somewhere. Yeah. That they just didn't know. Yep. It was an all-around ugly situation, and we will likely never know. Nope. They, so I wouldn't be surprised that eventually they find some piece of the airplane. Well, let's get into some of the more logistics of the searches. Purely using the currents that were known in the area, there was an oceanographer. His name is David Schwab. He was able to guesstimate basically a 12 and a half mile radius around where most of the debris was found and say, it's probably somewhere in there. So that's kind of where the Van He started searching. And actually, they had a really interesting sponsor for a couple of years. I thought this was incredibly fascinating, but Clive Cussler reached out to them, who is a famous author of a book series, the Dirk Pitt series. And like in the books, he writes about going and finding underwater wreckages, but then in real life, sponsors. That's what he does. Yeah. He actually founded the agency that he wrote his book about. And he's found, he found like 60 some odd wrecks during his time. And he he just recently passed away like a couple months ago. So all of this was like culminating together at once. So I thought that was really cool. They have since searched most of that region. They have, as a matter of fact, searched a 500 square mile region of... Like Michigan. In, almost in totality, which almost is insane. Almost in totality, where they believe the airplane could be. It's a huge amount of area. That's bigger than LA. So kudos to them. And then during this episode of Expedition Unknown, they actually were able to couple that reverse engineered forecast with the currents and were able to narrow down the region, coupled with the new eyewitness report, because then you know that he had to be able to see it, which meant that there was a radius around his house. So all of this culminated in one specific little area that they had not yet searched. So they proceeded to do so with fancy technology from the Michigan State Police Department. Yay! They programmed this really fancy autonomous underwater vehicle. UAV, or AUV. Yeah, that. AUV. And about 270 feet below the surface, they found a debris field. However... It was from an airplane. It was from an airplane. Let's But let's... not this airplane. No. Actually, interesting story. Um... Just a handful of years ago. On October 20th of 2004, a Kalita Air 747 was flying over Lake Michigan. Ascending out of Chicago. And uh, heard a bump and started to yaw. And so it was a cargo plane. And so one of the crew members went and looked out the window and there was an engine gone. There was an engine. This is the one where the engine (laughs) fell off the plane. Gone. There's an engine gone. It's happened very rare times, but we talk about it sometimes because... Miranda and I had this ongoing joke when we started watching air disasters. Like, Nick, do engines just fall off planes? No. He was like, no. And then we went okay, and watched the- air di- the next. Literally, we went home and watched the next episode of air disasters. And it was about a plane where the engine fell off the plane. And we were okay. like, wait, wait. You said that wasn't possible. It happened. Okay, anything is possible. <laughs> I didn't say it's impossible, but I say it just doesn't happen very often. It is so unbelievably rare in aviation. I mean, you don't hear about people's houses getting smashed by airplane engines falling off. It's happened, but it does not happen almost ever. So, and as a matter of fact, for it to even happen this in this recent of history is really crazy to me, actually, because that's just not normal. I know. In any case, so they found a, a, an airplane engine. The engine from the 747. From the 747. <laughs> Much more recent. 
was not what they were looking for. But That's pretty crazy. <laughs> that airplane managed to land and was fine. It was There fine. are That's pictures great. of that airplane on the ground with an engine missing. Go look for that. That's great. That said, it's pretty crazy that that would be in the same area they're looking yeah, for. Yeah, no kidding. The, the chances are insane. Yeah, the chances really are insane. It would be in that sm- same small little area. But on that note, to date, they are still scouring Lake, Mich- Lake Michigan for the wreckage. But they are actively doing so. As we speak. So it's not a given up effort. Not in the slightest. I feel like because it was so many years ago, I mean, it was over 50 years ago, mm-hmm. It would oh, be it's seventy years ago. Years ago. Yeah, yeah, it would be seventy years ago. Yeah, super hard. First of all, any wreckage that was there, if they impacted the water that really hard, a lot of stuff probably got vaporized, which means there's no evidence of it anymore. It well, depends on how hard they hit the water. Well, and the thing, the other thing we were discussing is that they fell into what they believe is thirty to forty feet of, of silt. silt. Thirty to forty feet of silt is a lot. That's just really you know thin. Almost mucusy dirt at the and, bottom of it, and the way they're and doing it moves their... and it changes and it sinks. Exactly. So. The way that they're doing their searches right now is primarily with sonar. They're not going and literally crawling along the bottom of Lake Michigan for 500 square miles because it's basically impossible. They're only diving when they see something on sonar. But I'm scared that a debris field won't show up under 30 to 40 feet of silt. You'll After just 70 years of it yeah, being down there. It'll just yeah. show up as flat. So all of this time that they're spending looking at a flat lake bottom, it could be under all that, and yeah. there's no way of knowing. But it's hard to say. And the thing is, is they are very experienced at what they do. They found a lot of wrecks. I think... when, they were in, when they were doing the episode, one of the places they searched, they found another ship they had no idea wrecked. Oh, yeah. And it was number 21 discovery for them like they found they've now found 21 unknown wrecks out in lake michigan yikes so i mean good on them they're finding other things it's just not what they're looking for it's really strange to think about like this plane is just missing and there was just there was some effort but not a huge effort into finding it or figuring out what happened and then they were when they first found the the 747 engine they were super excited they're like it has to be the plane there are no other planes that have ever gone down in lake michigan this is the only one and the airplane didn't go down but the engine did it fell off the wing but point is is like this is the only plane that's gone down in lake michigan it was hard for me to believe that people didn't find more pieces of the aircraft because some of that stuff, you know, had to go to the surface. I mean, I know they found some of it, but there has to be more of it that surfaced that people thought was junk or trash or whatever. And, and it may have been. It was part of the aircraft. It may have and been I, buried in the sand. I think if, I mean, this is kind of contradictory, but if it had been wet, better weather conditions, they would have been able to find it more easily. They, as Nick had mentioned, I don't know if you remember, but visibility in the water was eight inches yeah it's not very much they couldn't see anything and the only reason that was was because of the storm the storm churns up the water and therefore the silt so everything was a mess for days when we were watching the episode like they could see 20 30 feet in front of them because it was a clear day yeah so it was just a bunch of bad circumstances all culminating in no crash site my educated opinion being an educated person would be it's underneath all that silt at the bottom of the lake and it, because it's been down there for so long it's buried yep and especially like the engines and stuff they're so heavy it would just sink yep yeah i 
I don't know, unless more technology is developed, I don't think they'll be able to find under 30 to 40 feet of silt. No, there's no way. Yeah. Especially, like I said, because it's been down there so long, and silt consistently moves. It you shifts. Know? It shifts. I mean, the plane at this point, they might have found the crash site, right? But because it's been so long and silt moves, it could be in a completely different part of the lake. Right. Because of how much, how long and how much it moves and weather and all that stuff. Right. And it's just so hard to predict. There are so many factors. It makes it impossible. I mean, so the oceanographers, when I said that they narrowed it down to a select area even further, they ran 2,600 simulations of it crashing like one foot that way, one foot that way, and seeing where it would end up potentially. And that's how they narrowed it down to such an area but that's 2600 simulations right that's a lot and even like i said even if they did find the exact spot where it hit they might not it find might it. not be there right now or they can't find it underneath all the stuff at the bottom of the lake right if you've ever been in a lake or in the ocean for that matter good luck digging. with sand like when you yeah. step on it you sink imagine yeah. if it's tons well exactly like you'd immediately sink right so it it doesn't surprise me that they haven't found it yet. Right. Hopefully they do. I'm I'm cheering for them. I hope they find it. But I, I think, think we all do. We're all still hoping they find a triple seven out in the middle of who knows where. Oh my gosh, that <sighs> Malaysia. Yeah. How? And those aren't the only airplanes missing. someday we'll get into more of those. But let's discuss why this one in particular just wouldn't happen anymore. They found themselves in bad weather. They were in an airplane that couldn't fly very high, and they were flying at night in a no-radar-track area. So let's list off all the new technology. <laughs> so like, this, was radar? The ni- this was literally 1950. We're talking about a period of time that just was is 70 so, years ago. so different yeah. compared to the aviation oh, we know like now. it's like exact. Oh, hey. Yeah. It is. Sorry, my brain didn't do that math that fast. It's okay. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this episode will come out only like a month and a half before. Yeah. This is it actually happened so, from like 70 years to the day. So we have radar now, for one. Yeah, so now radar, air traffic control has radar, and Lake Michigan is very, very well covered because Chicago. Minneapolis. M- Milwaukee. And the likes. I mean, Detroit. That, yeah, Grand Rapids, all those things. They're all within a certain, they're all so close to that, that especially with Chicago being right there, being that, be it that yeah. Chicago O'Hare has a lot of approaches that require going over Lake Michigan, it's very well covered. Also, the planes can fly higher and are pressurized. Right. Yes, we have pressurized So they cabins. go above storms instead of going through them. Yep, we also get live and accurate weather data these days. In the cockpit. In the cockpit, fed to them in so many different ways, and including, like, literally aircraft-based radar, weather radar, Yep. that helps them see what's ahead of them so they can just avoid it. Most of the time. And they're yes. able, if they can't go the path that they normally do, they have an alternate route to go at to a different airport or turn around. Well, and that comes with speed. Airplanes these days are four or five times faster than the DC-4 was. The DC-4 was traveling so slow. I mean, they had already been in the air for going on six hours by the time this happened. A flight from LaGuardia to Minneapolis now is what? It's about two hours. If two and that. a half. Two and a half. Eh, it could be almost, it would, it it could be two about... and a half hours, three hours. Probably around five-ish hours to get from New York to Seattle. Generally. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to do the mathy maths on that? Just looking it up. The boop-a-da-boops? It's probably going on three hours. 
But regardless. Two hours and 29 minutes. Okay, so two and a half hours. To get to Minneapolis? Yep. So they I were mean, already. If you think about it, they're not that far away from each so other. So they were but... they were already more than twice that in distance, in speed and time. So you know, you think about it, that airplane was moving. You mean at half the speed? At half, twice yes, the time. they were half half the speed. They were slower, the and they had to do longer routes. So think about it, because of the speed, when you talk about making an alternate route, it takes them a lot longer to travel that alternate route. So they can't get out of the way of the storms necessarily like you can today. Nowadays, you need to get out of the way of the storm. You can very quickly change route and go a very different way because airplanes travel higher, faster, all those things. Yeah, so we don't have commercial planes generally going that slow anymore. Or that low. Definitely not I that low. I think in in the Expedition Unknown episode, they talked about how I think there's only six DC-4s currently flying. And he flew in one of them in yeah. the episode. Yeah, there are only six DC-4s still flying. There are more DC-6s still flying. It's a heavier, faster, more powerful version of the dc 4 but that re- regardless, you know, that's still not, not common anymore. Are the DC-4s pressurized now? No. No? So they still fly pretty low then? Yes. But they're really just... They're like pleasure aircraft now. At this point. They're strictly, they're strictly usually for show or cargo in Alaska. <laughs> in Alaska. So... Alaska. So there's a lot, there's a lot that has changed since that... then. This would not happen this, even remotely close. Yeah, to... this really would not happen. But what is amazing to me is the fact that technology still hasn't found that airplane. I know, right? I feel like... 70 years later. I Even in like the 70s, okay? Yeah. Maybe 20 to 25 years, they had some advanced technology that probably could have found the plane. It probably wasn't as bad as it is, you know, 70 years later, and they just kind of didn't do anything. Well, <laughs> 30 to 40 feet of silt doesn't help either. That's so, true. I feel like I would be one of those people, though, if I ever worked that case, to be like, I need to find this plane. Like, it well, disappeared. I would get obsessed about it. I, you could argue that's how Valerie Van Heest feels about it. She has written a whole book on the entire flight. Wow. She knows it like the back of her hand, and she has spent, I, I think she said, over a decade looking for this wreck. Mm-hmm. Good for her. I hope so, she finds it. I do, too. Best would of love, luck. Would love to interview her someday. That'd be great. About if you're listening this. to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doubtful, likely, but, but please. Well, like, email us. Let us know. Be on the podcast. That was Northwest Airlines Flight 2501. Thanks for continuing to listen. There's still quite a bit of people who are listening. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. We know it is very hard, especially in our big states like New York, <laughs> where you're not going anywhere. So you're probably not going to end up listening for a while. That's okay. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Do what's best for you. Make sure you are self-policing and stuff, as we've been saying for the past several weeks. Thanks again yep. to Karen, work grandma. <laughs> For recommending, I'm gonna put that on the website. Thank you, Karen Work Grandma, for <laughs> requesting this episode. She really wants to meet you, and she is very insistent that you wear your hair down. Oh my gosh, we'll get into that later. Okay, okay. post episode okay. time. All right, yeah. Have a great week, guys, uh, and thanks. <laughs> I was gonna say something else, and it just left my brain. Till right. next week. Till next week. Keep, Keep your, your speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, 
please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.